Chapter Four of the Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter Four Explanations. The remaining hours of Jack Ryder's night might be divided into three periods. There was an interval of astounding exhilaration, coupled with complete mental vacancy, during which a figure in a Scots costume might have been observed by the astonished Egyptian moon striding obliviously along the silent road to the Nile, past sleeping camels and snoring Duhra merchants, a period during which his sole distinguishable sensation was the memory of enchanting eyes, of a voice low and lovely, of a slender figure in a muffling charchaf of the touch of soft lips beneath a gauzy veil. This period was succeeded by hours of utter incredulity, in which he lay wide-eyed on the sleeping porch of McLean's domicile, and stared into the white cloud of his fly-net, and questioned high heaven and himself. Had he really done this? Had he actually caught and kissed this girl, this girl whose name he did not know, whose face he had never seen, of whom he knew nothing but that she was the daughter of a Turk, and utterly forbidden by every canon of sanity and self-preservation? In the name of wonder, what had possessed him? The night? The moon? The mystery of the unknown? If he had never really kissed her, he might have convinced himself that he had never really wanted to. But having kissed her! He looked upon himself as a stranger, a stranger of whom he would be remarkably wary in the days and nights to come but a stranger for whom he entertained a sort of secret, amazed respect. There had been an undeniable dash and daring to that stranger. During the third period he slept. When he awoke late in the morning and descended from a cold tub to a breakfast-room from which McLean had long since departed, he brought yet another mood with him, a mood of dark, deep disgust and a shamed inclination to dismiss these events very speedily from memory. For that shadowy and rather shady affair he had abandoned the merry and delightful Jinny Jeffreys, and got himself involved now in the duty of explanations and peacemaking. What in the world was he going to say? He meditated a note, but he hated a lie on paper. It looked so thunderingly black and white. Besides, he could not think of any. Dear Jinny, awfully sorry I was called away. No, that wouldn't do. He could take refuge in no such vagueness. Unfortunately, he and Jinny were on such terms of old intimacy that a certain explicitness of detail was expected. Dear Jinny, I had to leave last night and take a girl home. No, she would ask about the girl. Jinny had a propensity for locating people. It wouldn't do. His masculine instinct for saying the least possible in a matter with a woman, and his ripening experience which taught him to leave no mystery to awaken suspicion, wrestled with the affair for some time and then retired from the field. He compromised by telephoning Jinny briefly, and Jinny was equally as brief, and twice as cool and cryptic, and promising to take her out to tea. He reflected that if he took her to tea he would really have to stay over another night, for it would be too late to regain his desert camp, but the circumstances seemed to call for some social amend. And no matter how many nights he stayed, he certainly was not going to lurk about that lane outside garden doors. He must have been mad, stark staring, March Hatter mad. 
That morning, during its remainder, he concluded his buying of supplies and saw to their shipment upon the boat that left upon the following morning. That noon he lunched with an assistant curator of the Cairo Museum, who found him a good listener. That afternoon he escorted Jinny Jeffries and her uncle and aunt, the Josiah Pendletons, to tea upon the little island in the Cairo Park, where white-robed arrows brought them tea over the tiny bridge, and violins played behind the shrubbery, and white swans glided upon the blue lake, and then he carried them off in a Victoria to view the sunset from the citadel heights. Not a word about the dance, except a general affirmative to Mrs. Pendleton's question if he had enjoyed himself. The Pendletons had not stayed to look on for long, and Jinny had apparently not worn her bleeding heart upon her sleeve. But this immunity could not last. He could not hug the protecting Pendletons to him forever. Nor did he want to. They waned upon him. Mrs. Pendleton's conversation was a perpetual, Do look at! or dissertations from the guide-books. Already she had imparted a great deal of Flinders Petrie to him about his tombs. Mr. Pendleton was neither enthusiastic nor voluble, but he was attacking the objects of their travels, in the same thorough-going spirit that he attacked and surmounted the industrial obstacles of his career, and he went to a great deal of persistent trouble to ascertain the exact dates of passing mosques and the confirmations of their arches. The travellers had already done the citadel. They had climbed its rocky hill, they had viewed the Mahomet Ali Mosque, and its columns and its carpets, and had taken their guides and their guide-books word that it was an inferior structure, although so amazingly effective from below. They had looked studiously down upon the city, and tried to distinguish its minarets and towers and ancient gates. They had viewed with proper quizzicalness the imprint in the stone parapet of the hoof of that blind-footed horse which the last of the Mamelukes, cornered and betrayed, had spurred from the heights. So now, no duty upon them, Ryder led them past the citadel, up the Mokadam hills behind it, to that hilltop on which stood the little ancient mosque of the Sheikh el Goshi where the sunset spaces flowed round them like a sea of light, and the world dropped into miniature at their feet. Below them, in a golden haze, Cairo's domes and minarets were shining like a city of dreams. To the north, toy fields, vivid green, of rice and cotton lands, and the silver thread of the winding Nile, and all beyond, west and southwest, the vast, illimitable stretch of desert, shimmering in the opalescent air, sweeping on to the farthest edge of blue horizon. "'A nice resting-place,' said Jack Ryder, appreciatively, of the tomb of the Sheikh el-Gashi. "'I presume the date is given,' Mr. Pendleton was murmuring, as he began to ferret with his bidecker. Mrs. Pendleton sighed sentimentally. "'He must have been very fond of nature.' "'He was very distrustful of his wives,' said Ryder, grinning. "'He had three of them, all young and beautiful.' "'I thought you said he was a saint,' murmured Jinny, to which interpolation he responded, "'Wouldn't three wives make any man a saint?' and resumed his narrative. And so he had his tomb made where he could overlook the whole city and observe the conduct of his widows. "'They could move,' objected Miss Jeffreys. "'The female of the Mohammedan species is not the free agent that you imagine,' Ryder retorted, beginning with a smile and ending with a queer, reminiscent pang. He had a moment's rather complicated twinge of amusement at her reactions, if she should know that to an encounter with a female of the Mohammedan species was to be attributed his departure from her party last night. 
and then he remembered that he hadn't decided yet what to tell her, and the time was undoubtedly at hand. The time was at hand. The Pendletons were too thorough-going Americans not to abdicate before the young. They did not saunter self-consciously away and make any opportunity for Jack and Jinny, as sympathetic European chaperones might have done. They sat matter-of-factedly upon the rocks, while their competent young people betook themselves to higher heights. Conscientiously, Ryder was pointing out the pyramid fields. Giza, Abusir, Sakara, Dasur, and now here, if you look, that's the Madun pyramid, that tiny, sharp prick. If we had glasses— Yes, but why didn't you like the ball? murmured Jinny the direct. I did like the ball, very much. Then why didn't you stay? I—I I wasn't feeling top-hole, he murmured lamely, wondering why girls always wanted to go back and stir up dogs that had gone comfortably to sleep. Did it come on suddenly? said Jinny unsympathetically, her eyes still upon the pyramids. Something whimsical twitched at Jack Ryder's lips. Very suddenly, like thunder out of China across the bay. I suppose that dancing with the same girl in succession brings on the seizures? So she had noticed that. Not for nothing were those bright gray eyes of hers. Not for nothing the red hair. Well, I rather think it did, he said deliberately. That girl was a child who hadn't danced in four years, so she said, and I believe her. And Jinny received what he intended to convey. Stepped on your buckled shoon and you felt a martyr? But why bolt? There were other girls who had danced within four years. I went into the garden, he murmured. The fact is, I was feeling awfully queer, he brought out in an odd tone. Queer was a good word for it. He let it go at that. He couldn't do better. Jinny looked suddenly uncertain. Her peak was streaked with compunction. She had been horribly angry with him for running away, and she remembered his opposition to the idea enough to be suspicious of any disappearance. But there was certainly an accent of embarrassed sincerity about him. Perhaps he had been ill. Sudden seizures were not unknown in Egypt, and for all his desert brown he didn't look very rugged. She murmured, I hope you hadn't taken anything that disagreed with you. Hmm. It rather agreed with me at the time, said Jack, and then brought himself up short. I expect I haven't looked very sharp after myself. But Jinny did not wholly renounce her idea. Does it always take you at dances you don't want to go to? That's unfair. I came, you know. You came and went. I'd have been all right if I hadn't come, he murmured, and Jinny felt suddenly ashamed of herself. Do you suppose that you would stay all right if you came to dinner? She offered pacificably. It's our last night, you know, till we come back from the Nile. I wish I could. Ryder stopped short. Now why couldn't he? Certainly he didn't intend. But his tongue took matters promptly out of his hesitation's hands. Fact is, I've an engagement, he added, appeasingly. That's why I was so keen on getting you for tea. And Jinny told him appreciatively that it was a lovely tea and a lovely view. We're going to be at the hotel, I expect, she threw out carelessly, and if you get through in time... Rather hastily he assured her that indeed, if he got through in time... She was a nice girl, was Jinny, a pretty girl, with just the right amount of red in her hair. Sanity would have sent him to the hotel to dine with her. Sanity would also have sent him to the jockey club with McLean. Certainly Sanity had nothing to do with the way that he kept himself to himself, after his farewells at the hotel with the Pendletons, and took him to an out-of-the-way Greek café where he dined very badly upon stringy lamb 
and sodden baklava. Later he wandered restlessly about dark medieval streets, where squat groups were clustered about some coffee-house door, intent upon a game of checkers or some patriarchal storyteller, recounting, very probably, a bandied narration of the Thousand and One Nights. Through other open doors drifted the exasperatingly nasal twang of Cairene music, and idly pausing, Ryder could see above the red fezes and turbans that topped the cross-legged audiences the dark, sleek, slowly revolving body of some desert dancing girl. Irresolutely he drifted on to the Espakia quarters, to the streets where the withdrawn camels and donkeys had left preeminent the carriages and motors of that stream of continental nightlife, which sets towards Cairo in the season Russian dukes and German millionaires, Viennese actresses and French singers, and ladies of no avowed profession, gamblers, idlers, diplomats, drifters, vivid flashes of color in the bizarre kaleidoscopic spectacle. It was quite dark now. The last pale gleam of the afterglow had faded, and the blue of the sky, deepening and darkening, was pierced with the thronging stars. It was very warm, no breeze, but a fitful stirring in the tops of the feathery palms. The streets were growing still. Only from some of the hotels came the sound of music from lighted open windows. Jinny would be rather expectant at her hotel. He could, of course, drop in for a few minutes, since he was so near. He walked past the hotel. Jinny would be packing, or ought to be, a pity to disturb her, and his dusty tweeds and travelling cap was no calling costume. He walked past again, and this time he paused, on the brink of a dark canyon of a lane, running back between walls hung with bougainvillea. Quite suddenly he remembered that he had told that girl, whose name he did not know, that he would come. It was a definite promise. It was an obligation. He could do nothing less. It might be unwelcome, absurd, a nuisance, but really it was an obligation. He sauntered down the lane, keeping carefully in the shadow. He loitered within the deep-set door, and felt a queer throb of emotion at the sight of it. And so, sauntering and loitering, he waited in the darkening night, promising himself disgustedly through the dragging moments to clear out and be done with this but still interminably lingering, his pulses throbbing with that disowned expectancy. Very cautiously the gate began to open. End of chapter 4 Chapter 5 of The Fortieth Door This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley Chapter 5 At the Garden Gate Inch by inch the gate edged open. Warily he presented himself. The furtive crack gave him an instant's glimpse of a dark form within the shadows. Then, in his face, it closed. Ryder waited. In a moment it was opened wider, and he saw the dark-shrouded head and the veiled face of the Turkish girl, and out from the blackness the sparkle of young eyes. "'Is it? But who is it?' whispered a doubtful voice, and at his, "'Why, it is I, the American!' Quickly drawing off his cap, a little hand darted out of the darkness to pluck him swiftly within, and the door was closed to within an inch of its opening. Then the black phantom, drawing him back among the shrubbery against the wall, turned with a muffled note of laughter. But the costume! Imagine that I—I I was looking again 
for a Scottish chieftain, with red kilts and a feather in his cap. And instead— Ryder looked down at his tweeds with humorous recognition of his change of figure. Then his eyes returned to her. "'But you are the same,' he murmured. She was indeed the same. The same black street mantle down to her very brows, the same black veil up to her very eyes. And the eyes, their soft, mysterious loveliness, the little winged tilt of the brows. Apparently their effect was disconcertingly the same. He was conscious of a feeling that was far from a normal calm. "'So you were all right?' he half-whispered. "'Those steps, last night, you know, made me horribly afraid for you. "'But yes, I am all right.' As excitement gained upon him, a constraint was falling upon her. They were both remembering that moment, overlooked in the rush of recognition, when they had parted in this place, when he had had the temerity to clasp and kiss her. Ami was standing rigid and wary, ready for flight at the first fear. She told herself that she had only come through pride, the pride that insisted upon humbling his presumption. She would let him see how bitterly he had offended. She had only come for this, she told herself, and to see if he had come. If he had not come, that would have dealt a sorely humiliating blow. But he was here, and reassured and haughty, repeating that she was mortally offended, her spirit alternating between pride and shame and a delicious fear. She stood there in the shrubbery, fascinated, like a wild, shy thing of another age. "'That was old Miriam,' she explained constrainedly. "'My father had come in with unexpectedness.' "'Lord, it was lucky you were back.' "'Yes, it was lucky,' she assented. "'If it had been half an hour before—' She broke off. There came to the young man a sobering perception of the risk she ran, of the supreme folly of this escapade to which they were entrusting themselves. It was a realization that deserved some consideration, but obstinately, with young carelessness, he shook it off. After all, this was comparatively safe for her. She was not out of bounds. At an alarm he could slip away and no one could ever know. What risk there might be was chiefly his own. "'When you asked me who it was,' he murmured, "'it occurred to me that you did not know my name, nor I yours. "'My own,' he added, as she stood unresponsive, "'is Ryder, Jack Ryder.' You can always get a letter to me at the Agricultural Bank. That is the quickest way. My friend, McLean there, always knows where my diggings are. When in Cairo I stop with him, or at the Rosmore House. I shall not need to get a letter to you, monsieur, she told him stiffly. But, if you did, how would you sign it? Amy, that is French, after my mother. Amy, that means beloved, doesn't it? She was silent. Surely, she thought with a swelling heart, if he were sorry, he would tell her now. It was the moment for contrition, for appeasement, for whatever explanation his American ways might have. She had thought about him all night. She had given his declaration a hundred forms, but always it had been a declaration. Now she waited, flagellating her sensitive pride. Ryder was conscious of the constraint tightening about them, and in the dragging pause an uncomfortable common sense had time to put its disconcerting questions. What did it matter what her name meant? What in the world was he doing here? And what did she think she was doing here? Not that he wanted her to go. And suddenly it didn't matter, whatever they thought. It was enough that they were together in that still, soft, jasmine-scented dark. He was breathing quickly. His pulses were beating. He had a feeling of strange, heady delight. The crescent moon was up at last, sailing clear of the housetops, sending its bright rays through the filigree of tall shrubs. 
A finger of light edged the contour of her shrouded head. He bent a little closer. "'Won't you?' he said softly. "'Take your veil off for me?' Appalled, she clasped it to her. He had no idea in the world of the shock of that request. It would be only a faint parallel of its impropriety to suggest to Jinny Jeffreys that she discard her frock. Even Ryder's acquaintance with Egypt could not tell him how that swift, confident eagerness of his could startle an affront. "'I want to see you so very much,' he was murmuring, and met the chill disdain of her retort. "'But it is not for you to see my face, monsieur.' "'Who is to see it?' he demanded. "'Who but the man I am to marry?' she gave distinctly back. The word hit him like stone. He was conscious of a shock. Did she intend to rebuke, or to imply, to question his intention? The steadiness of her low voice suggested a certain steadiness of design. He had heard of girls who knew their own minds, girls with unexpectedly far-sighted vision. Perhaps, poor child, she looked upon him as romantic escape from all that was restrictive in her life. Secluded women go fast when they start. The devil take him for that kiss. A somewhat set look upon his thin face guarded the fluctuations of his soul, but the blood rose strongly under his dark skin. For a moment he did not venture upon a reply, and in that moment he was suddenly aware that she had caught his meaning from him, and that it was a horrible mistake. It was one of those instants of highly charged exchanges of meanings whose revelation was as useless to be denied as powerless to be explained. Then her words came in tumultuous, passionate refutation of his thought. That is what my father had come to tell me, that he had arranged my marriage. It is a very splendid thing. To a general, a rich general. She had not meant to tell him like that, but for the moment she was savagely glad to hurl it at him. He made no answer. His eyes were inscrutably intent. A variety of things were rearranging themselves in his head. You're, you're going to marry him? he said slowly. What else? But she felt the phrase unfortunate, and plunged past it. It is not for me to say no, monsieur. It is for my father to arrange. But his indulgence! You were telling me, you know, that he was so fond of you, that you were one of the moderns, the revolting moderns. Jack Ryder's tone was questioningly cynical, and its raillery cut through her brief sham of pride. So I thought, too, last night. A tinge of infinite disillusionment was in her young voice. But it is not so. Then you accept? The shrouded head nodded. But you can't want to, he broke out with sudden heat. You don't know him at all, do you, this general? Know him? I have never seen his face nor heard his voice. And I would die first, she added with bitter, helpless fierceness under her breath. The veil muffled that from him. But why? Why? he repeated in an angrily puzzled way. She made a little gesture of weary impotence. Out of the dark draperies her hands were like white fluttering butterflies. What can I do? I should think you could do the old Harry of a lot. Weep, said the girl, with a pale irony not lost upon him. Weep or row, or run, he added almost reluctantly. She turned away her head. I know, I thought once that I could run. For that I stole the key to this gate. But where would I run, monsieur? I have neither friends nor nor the resources. There have been girls, two sisters, who ran away last year, but they were already married and they had cousins in France. For me, my cousins do not exist. I do not know my mother's family. They disowned her for her marriage, my father says. 
and so but it is not possible to evade this it is not possible this marriage is required required rot can't you don't you he paused looking down upon her in tremendous and serious uncertainty the impulse was strong upon him to tell her that he would help her the accents of her voice had seemed to tear at his very heart it was utter madness where in the map of africa would he hide her and how would he take care of her what would he do to her make love to her marry her take home a wife from an egyptian harem a surprising acquisition with which to startle and enchant his decorous family in east middleton and a pretty end to his work here his reputation his responsibilities it was madness and the fact that the thought had presented itself even for his flouting mockery indicated that he was mad he told himself to be careful better men than he had everlastingly done for themselves because upon a night of stars and moonshine some dark-eyed girl had played the very devil with their common sense he reminded himself that he had never set eyes on her until last night that she might be the consummate perfection of a minx that there might not be a word of truth in all of this this general now sudden not a word about it last night and now he had an inkling that even mohammedan fathers do not rush matters at such a pace for all he knew the girl might be inventing this general for some artless reasons of her own for all he knew she might be married to him and desirous of escape but he didn't believe it she was too young and shy and virginal the accents of her candour rebuked his scepticism he merely told himself these things because the last vestige of his expiring common sense was prompting him and after all these credible and excellent exhortations to the utter extinction of the last vestige of that common sense he heard himself saying abruptly but isn't there anything in the world that i can do nothing monsieur but for you to submit like this it is not to be helped but it is to be helped if you really dislike it he added jealously i cannot help it because because my father she hesitated the honour of her father and her family pride and affection were all involved yet suddenly the sacrifice of these became more tolerable than to consent to that image of herself which she saw swiftly defining itself in his mind that slight weak creature whose acquiescent passivity submitted to this marriage the thought was unbearable she was burning beneath her veil she would tell him and perhaps she was not averse in her childish pride to the pitiful glory of having him see her in the beauty of her filial sacrifice my father has has done something against the english laws she faltered and hamdi bey this general knows of it and will inform unless unless my father makes this marriage a cousin of his has seen me she added her young vanity forlornly rearing its head and told hamdi that i am not not too ill-looking a girl her essay of a laugh died Ryder's look deepened in its sharp defensive concentration this is true i mean your father is not just putting something over telling you to get your consent her thoughts flew back to her father's haggard face oh it is true i know and he's going to hand you over what sort is this hamdi a general old evil enough to lay traps to obtain me it's abomination the anger in the young man surged beyond his control you must not do it if your father is clever enough to break a law let him be clever enough to mend it by himself such a sacrifice is not required you must realize what this means to you you must realize look here i'll help you i'll plan some escape 
There must be ways. I have friends. She stifled the leap of her heart. She held her head high, and made what she thought was a very noble little speech. "'It is for my father, monsieur. You do not understand. It is to save my father.' He looked at her in silence. He was afraid to answer for a moment. He could feel the unruly blood beating even in the lips he pressed together. "'But you don't understand,' he blurted at last, and broke off. After all, he did not know this girl. If he swayed her judgment now, and dragged her away, what life, what compensation could he offer her? How did he know that she would not regret it? Would she be happier in a world unknown? She had been brought up to this sort of thing. It was bred in her. Marriage was her inevitable game. This very charm she exercised, this subtle, haunting invasion of his senses, what was that but another proof of the harem existence, where all influences were forced to serve the ends of sex? And she was so maddeningly resigned to take this general. A queer, hot rage was gaining possession of him. "'Oh, well, if you prefer this,' he said brutally, with a youthful desire to wreak pain in return for that strange pain which something was inflicting upon him. A girl who would let him kiss her one night, and on the next inform him that she was giving herself to an unknown, an old Turk. If she could go like that, to some other's arms and lips. He wanted to take her fiercely in his arms, and crush her lips against his, and then fling her away, and say, Oh, go to him now, if you can. And at the same time he wanted to gather her to him as tenderly as if she were a flower he was guarding, and tell her that he would protect her against all the world. He was divided and confused, and blindly angry. He felt baffled and frustrated. He was both aching and raging, and yet he was capable of reminding himself, in some corner of his uninvaded mind, that this was undoubtedly the best thing for them both. What else? For him, for her. And yet his tongue went on stabbing her. If this is what you are determined to do, he heard himself saying hardly, yet with a hint of deferred finality. It was as if he had said, If this, then, is what you are like, if you are the soft, submissive harem creature, the toy, the odalesque, if you will endure undesired love rather than face the world. And she knew that was what he was saying to her. The injustice brought a lump of self-pity to her throbbing throat. That he should not realize and honor the courage of her sacrifice. That he should reproach, despise. She had expected other entreaties, protestations. Her heart ached with a throb of steady dreariness. But she did not stir. Not a line of her drooping draperies wavered towards him. And swallowing that lump in her throat, she achieved a toneless, that is what I am going to do. At the other end of the garden a sound came from the house. Ryder seemed to rouse himself. "'Good-bye, then,' he said uncertainly. "'Good-bye, monsieur.' He looked oddly at her. "'Good-bye,' he muttered again, and turned, and stumbled out of the gate. A pool of moonlight lay without its arches, and he stepped into it as if coming out of the shadows of an enchanted garden. He stood and straightened himself as if throwing off that garden spell. He put back his shoulders and took a quick step down the lane. A slight sound drew his eyes back. She had followed him to the gate. She stood there in the moonlight, against the inky wells of shadow into which her black robe flowed, and in the moonlight her face, gazing after him, was an exquisite ethereal apparition like a spirit of the garden. She had cast off her veil. He had a vision of her dark eyes shining over rose-flushed cheeks, 
of deeper rose-red lips in curves of haunting sweetness, of the tender contour of her young face, fixed unforgettingly in the radiant moonlight. Only an instant's vision, for while the blood stopped in his veins, the darkness engulfed her like a magician's curtain. But he waited while he heard the gate closed. Still he waited while he heard her locking it. And then, for all his hot young pride, he turned back and knocked upon it. He called softly. He whispered entreaties. Not a sound, not an answer. In a revulsion of feeling, he turned and made his way blindly from the lane. She had heard his voice. Like a creature utterly spent, she had been leaning against the great gate from which she had withdrawn the key. But she uttered not a breath in answer, and after she had heard his footsteps die away, she turned slowly back and groped among the rose-roots for the key's hiding-place. Mechanically she smoothed it over and moved on towards the house. All was quiet there. That sound had been no alarm. Unobserved she slipped within the little door and up the spiral steps. She had not seen the dark eyes that were watching her from the other side of the rose thicket. After the girl had gained the house, the old woman came forward and stooped before the marked bush, muttering under her breath at the thorns. After a few moments she gave a little grunt of satisfaction, and her exploring hand drew out the key. Smoothing again the rifled hiding-place among the roses, she made her careful way into the house. End of chapter 5《Chapter Six of the Fortieth Door》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter Six A Secret of the Sands. The siesta was past. The sun was tilting towards the west, and shadows were beginning to jut out across the blazing sands. Over the mounds of rubbish the bearers had resumed their slow procession, a picturesque frieze of tattered, indigo-robed, ebony figures, baskets on heads, against the cloudless cobalt sky, and again the hot air was invaded with the monotonous rise and fall of their labor chant. A man with a short, pointed red beard and an academic face beneath a pith-helmet was stooping over the siftings from those baskets, intent upon the stream of sand through the wire screens. Patiently he discarded the unending pebbles, discovering at rare intervals some lost bead, some splinter of old sycamore wood, some fragment of pottery in which a Ptolemy had sipped his wine, or a kitchen wench had soaked her lentils. Beyond the man were traces of the native camp, a burnt-out fire, a roll of rags, a tattered shelter-cloth stuck on two tottering sticks, and distributed indiscriminately were a tethered goat, a white donkey with motionless drooping ears, and a few supercilious camels. The camp was in the centre of a broken line of foothills on the desert's edge. North and south and west the wide sands swept out to meet the sky, and to the east, shutting out the Nile Valley, the hills reared their red rock from the yellow drift. Among the jutting rock in the foreground yawned dark mouths that were the entrances of the discovered tombs, and within one of these tombs was another white man, he was conducting his own siftings in high solitude, a lean, bronzed young man with dark hair and eyes, and, at the present moment, an unexhilarated expression. It had been two weeks since Jack Ryder had returned to camp, two interminable weeks, 
They were the longest, the dullest, the dreariest, the most irritatingly undelighting weeks that he had ever lived through. But bitterly he resented any aspersion from the long-suffering Thatcher upon his disposition. He wanted it distinctly understood that he was not low-spirited. Not in the least. A man wasn't in the dumps just because he wasn't, well, garrulous. Just because he didn't go about whistling like a steam siren or exult like a cheerleader when someone dug up the effigy of a Hathor cow. Just because he objected when the natives twanged their fool strings all night and wailed at the moon. The moon was full now. Round and white it went sailing blandly over the eternal monotony of desert. Round and white it lighted up the eternal sameness of life. He had never noticed it before, but a moon was a poignantly depressing phenomenon. He couldn't help it. A man couldn't make himself be a comedian. It wasn't as if he wanted to be a grump. He would have been glad to be glad. He wanted Thatcher to make him glad. He defied him to. He didn't enjoy this flat, insipid taste of things, this dull grind, this feeling of sameness and dullness that made nothing seem worth while, a feeling that he had been marooned on a desert island, far from all stir and throb of life. Suppose he did dig up a Hather cow. Suppose he dug up Hather herself, or Cleopatra, or ten little Ptolemies. What was the good of it? Not Jinny Jeffreys herself could have cast more aspersions upon the personal value of excavations. When he was tired of denying to himself that there was anything unusual the matter with him, he shifted the inner argument, and took up the denial that anything which had happened in Cairo those two weeks before had anything to do with it. As if that rash encounter mattered! As if he were the silly, senseless, sentimental sort of idiot to go mooning about his work because of a girl, and a girl from a harem with a taste for secret masquerades and Turkish marriages! as if he cared. Of course, he admitted this logically and coldly now to himself, as he sat there in the ray of his excavator's lantern on the sanded floor at the end of the hall of offerings. Of course, he was sorry for the girl. It was no life for any young girl, especially a spirited one, with her veins bubbling with French blood. The system was wrong. If they were going to shut up those girls, they had no business to bring them up on modern ideas. If they kept the mashrubia on the windows and the yasmuk on their faces, they ought to keep the coal on their eyes and the henna on their fingers and education out of their hidden heads. It was too bad. But, of course, they were brought up to it. Look how quickly that girl had given in. She was Turkish, through and through, submissive, docile, and a darn good thing she was, too. Suppose she had taken him at his full word. Suppose she had really wanted to get away. Lucky, that's what he'd been and it would be a lesson to him. Never again. No more masked young things with their stolen keys and their harem entrances. No more whispered tales of woe in a shady garden. No more. Violently he wrenched himself from his no mores. Recollection had a way of stirring up an unpleasant tumult. But it was all over. He had forgotten it. He would forget it. He would forget her. Work, that was the thing. Normal, sensible, everyday work. But there was no joy in this tonic work. Somewhere, between a night and a morning, he had lost that glow of accomplishment which had buoyed him, which had made him fairly ecstatic over the discovery of this very tomb. For this tomb was his own find. It had been found long before by the plundering Persians, and it had been found by Arabs who had plundered the Persian remains. But between and after those findings, the oblivious sands had swept over it, blotting it from the world, 
choking the entrance hall and the shafts, seeping through half-sealed entrances, and packing its dry drift over the rifled sarcophagus of the king and over the withered mummy of the young girl in the anteroom. The tombs had been cleared now, down almost to the stone floors, and Ryder was busy with the drifts that had lodged in the crevices about the entrance to the shaft. It was really an important find. Although much plundered, the walls were intact, and the delicate carvings in the white limestone walls were exceptional examples. And there were some very interesting things to decipher. A scholar and an explorer could well be enthusiastic. But Ryder continued to look far from enthusiastic, even when his groping fingers, searching a cranny, came in contact with a hard substance, his face did not change to any lightning radiance. Unexpectedly, he picked up the sand-encrusted lump and brushed it off. A gleam of gold shone in his hand. But it was no ancient amulet or necklace or breast-guard, nor was it any bit of the harness of the plundering Persians. It was a locket, very heavily and ornately carved. He stood a moment, staring down at the thing, with a curious feeling of having stood staring down at exactly the same thing before, that subconscious feeling of the repetition of events which supports the theories of reincarnationists, and then, quite suddenly, memory came to his aid. In McLean's office, that day of the masquerade, those visiting Frenchmen and that locket they had shown him, of course the thing reminded him, and it was remarkably alike, the same thick oval, the same ponderous effect of the coat of arms. If it should prove the same coat of arms, that would be a clue. With his mind still piecing the recollection and surmise together, his fingers pressed the spring. There was a miniature within, but it was not the picture of Monsieur Delcasse. Ryder was looking down upon the face of a girl, a beautiful, spirited face, with merry eyes and wistful lips, dark eyes, with a lovely arch of brow, and rose-red lips with haunting curves and eyes and brows and lips and curves it was the face of the girl who had gazed after him in the moonlight against the shadows of the pasha's garden end of chapter six chapter seven of the fortieth door this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter Seven, to McLean's astonishment. It is no end of good of you, Jack, to take this trouble," Andrew McLean remarked appreciatively, looking up from his scrutiny of the packet which his unexpected luncheon guest had pushed over to his plate. Uncommon thoughtful. It is undoubtedly a twin to that locket, the portrait of the man's wife, whatever his name was. Delcasse said Jack Ryder promptly. Gratefully he drained the second lemon squash which the silent-footed Mohammed had placed at his elbow. It had been a hard morning's trip, this coming in from camp in high haste, and he was hot and dusty. "'You might have sent the thing,' McLean mentioned. "'I dare say that special agent chap has left the country, for I recollect he said he was at the end of his search. And, of course, this isn't much of a clue, eh, what?' "'It's everything of a clue,' insisted Ryder. It shows where this Frenchman was working, for the first thing. Unless it had been stolen by some native who lost it in the tomb. Natives don't lose gold lockets. Of course, it might have been stolen and hidden, but that's far-fetched. It's much more likely that this was the very tomb where Delcasse was working at the time of his death. 
For one thing, the place showed signs of previous excavation up to the inner corridor, and there, I'll swear, no modern got ahead of me. And for another thing, it's a perfect specimen of the limestone carving of the tomb of Tai, which Delcas wrote in his book about. Looks very much as if it might be by the same artist. There's a flock of hippopotami in a marsh scene with the identical drawing, and there's the same lovely boat in full sail. But there, you bounder, you don't know the tomb of Tai from a thyroid gland. You're here to administer financial justice, the middle, the high, and the low. Your soul is with piasters, not the past. But take my word for it, it's exactly the spot where an enthusiast of the Tai tomb would be grubbing away. Lord, they could choose their find in those days. It's uncommonly likely, McLean conceded, abandoning his demolished cherry tart and pulling out his briar. And if the locket proves the duplicate of the other, it indicates that it's a portrait of Madame Delcasse. But it doesn't indicate what has become of Madame Delcasse. Though in a general way, McLean deduced with Scotch judicialness, it supports the theory of foul play. The woman would hardly have lost her miniature or have sold it. Except under pressing conditions, in fact. Ryder was brusque with his facts. That doesn't matter. Madame Delcasse doesn't matter. The thing that matters is— As brusquely he broke off. His tongue balked before the revelation, but he goaded it on. That there is a girl, the living image of that picture. I say! McLean looked up at that, distinctly intrigued. That's getting on. You mean you've seen her? Ryder nodded, suddenly busy with his cigarette. Where is she now? In Cairo? That's luck, man. And you say she's like? You'd think it her picture. It's an uncommon face. McLean bent over it again. I fancied the artist had just been making a bit of beauty. But if there's a girl like that, fancy stumbling on that. But where is she? And what name does she go by? Oh, her name. She doesn't know her own, of course. Ryder paused uncertainly. She's in Cairo, he began again vaguely. She'd be just about the right age, eighteen or so. She—she's had awfully hard luck. Distressfully, he hesitated. The shrewd eyes of McLean dwelt upon him in sorrowful silence. Eh, Jock, he said at last, with mock scandal, scarcely veiling rebuke. I did not know that you knew any of that sort, the poor wee lost thing. Tell me no. Tell you you're off your chump, said Jack rudely. She's no lost lamb. Fact is, she's never spoken to a man except myself. He rather enjoyed the start this gave McLean after his insinuations. It helped him on with his story. The girl doesn't know her own name at all, I gather. She thinks she's the daughter of Tufik Pasha. Her mother married the Turk and died very soon afterwards, and he brought up this girl as his own. She says she's his only child. He paused, ostensibly to blow an elaborate smoke-ring, but actually to enjoy McLean's astonishment. As astonishment, it was distinctly vivid. It verged upon a genuine horror as Ryder's meaning sank into his friend's mind. McLean knew, slightly, Tufik Pasha. He knew, supremely, the inviolable seclusion of a daughter of such a household. He knew the utter impossibility of any man's speech with her. Yet here was Ryder telling him. Ryder's telling him was a sketchy performance. He mentioned the girl's appearance at the masquerade and their acquaintance. He touched lightly upon her attempted flight in his pursuit. Even more lightly, he passed over those lingering moments at her garden gate and the exchange of confidences. She said that her dead mother had been French, and that her name was her mother's name, Amy. So there is... But the likeness, man, her face, she never unveiled to you. Well, the next night... The next night? 
It was at this point that Ryder began to lose his relish of McLean's astonishment. "'Yes, the next night,' he repeated with careful carelessness. "'I told the girl I would come and see if she got in all right. There had been some footsteps the night before. "'And you went? And she came? Do you suppose she sent her father?' "'You're lucky she didn't send her father's eunuch,' McLean retorted grimly. "'Well, get on with your damn story. The girl took off her veil?' "'Nothing of the kind,' said Jack, a trifle testily. "'So soon does conventional masculinity champion the conservatism of the other sex. That was just as I was going, gone, in fact. I looked back, and she had drawn her veil aside. The moon was bright on her face. I saw her as clear as daylight, and I tell you that this miniature is a picture of her. She is Delcasse's daughter, and she doesn't know it. Her mother was stolen by that disgusting old Turk.' "'Hold on a bit!' Fifteen years ago, Tufik could hardly have been thirty, and he has the rep of a Don Juan. It may have been a love affair, or it may have been plunder. The girl remembers her? Very little. She was so young when her mother died. She said that her father was so in love that he never married again. Hm. It seems to me that I've heard tales of our Tufik and of pretty ladies in apartments. Cairo is a city of secrets and tattlers. However, as to this Delcasse inheritance, I'll just notify the French legation. We'll have to look sharp, said Ryder quickly. There's no time to lose. The girl is to be married. Married? But she'll inherit the money just the same. But she doesn't want to be married, Ryder insisted anxiously. Her father, her alleged father, has just sprung this on her. Says there are political or financial reasons. He's been caught in some dirty work by this Hamdi Bay, and he's stopping Hamdi's mouth with the girl, and we've got to stop that. "'I wonder if we can,' said McLean thoughtfully. "'If we can? When the girl is French? When she's been lied to? And deceived?' "'She seems to have been taken jolly well care of, brought up as his own and all that. Keep your shirt on, Jack,' McLean advised dryly, with a shrewd glance from his grey eyes at the other's unguarded heat. Then his eyes dropped to the miniature again. A lovely face, a lovely, unfortunate creature— and if the daughter looked like that small wonder that jack was touched beauty in distress some men had all the luck mclean reflected he had never taken jack for the gallivanting kind either yet here he was going to masquerades with one girl and coming home with another jack was too good-looking that was the trouble with the youngster good-looking and gay-humoured the kind that attracted women women and romance were never fluttering about the blank light-eyed uninteresting old scotchman of twenty-nine a mild and wistful pang, which McLean refused to name, made itself known. "'I'll see the legation,' he began. "'At once I'll wait,' urged Ryder. And at once McLean went. The result was what he had foreseen. The legation was appreciative of his interest. That special agent had returned to France, but his address was left, and undoubtedly the family of Delcasse would be grateful for any information which Monsieur McLean could send. "'Send!' repudiated Ryder hotly. Write to France and back? Wait for somebody to come over? Can't the legation do something now? The legation has no authority. They can't take the girl away from the man who is, at any rate, her stepfather. They can put the fear of God into him about this marriage. They can deny his right to hand her over to one of his pals. They can threaten him with an inquiry into the circumstances of her mother's marriage. And why should they? They may regard it as a very natural marriage— and remember, my dear Jack, 
that the legation has no desire to alienate the affections of influential Turks, or criticize fifteen years ago romances. You have a totally wrong impression of the responsibilities of foreign representatives. But to let him dispose of a French girl? He is disposing of her as his daughter, in honourable marriage, to a wealthy and aristocratic general. There can be no question of his motives. Of course, if you think that sort of thing is all right, Carefully McLean ignored the other's wrath. Patiently, he explained, "'It's not what I think, my dear fellow. It's what the legation thinks. There's not a chance in the world of getting the marriage stopped.' "'Then I'll do it myself,' declared Ryder. "'I'll see this Tufik Pasha and talk to him. Tell him the money is to come to the girl only when she is single. Tell him the French law gives the father's representatives full charge. Tell him that he kidnapped the mother, and the government will prosecute unless the girl is given her liberty.' tell him anything. A man with a guilty conscience can always be bluffed. In silence, McLean gazed upon him, perplexed and clouded, his quizzical twinkle gone. Jack was taking this thing infernally to heart, and it was a bad business. You will let me do the telling, he stated at last grimly. What can be said, I'll say. Like a fool, I will meddle. And so it happened that within another hour two very stiff and constrained young men were ringing the bell at the entrance door of Tufik Pasha. End of chapter 7「Chapter 8 of the Fortieth Door This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley Chapter Eight, Tufik Receives A huge Sudanese admitted them. They found themselves in a tiled vestibule, looking through open arches into the green of a garden. That garden, Ryder hardly needed to remind himself, with whose back door he had made such unconventional acquaintance. Now he had a glimpse of a sunny fountain and fluttering pigeons, and, on either side of the garden, of the two wings of the building, gay white walls with green shutters, more suggestive of a French villa than an Egyptian palace, before the Sudanese marshalled them toward the stairs upon the right. The left, then, was the way to the haremlik, and somewhere in those secluded rooms, to which no man but the owner of the palace ever gained admission, was Ami. The Sudanese mounted the stairs before them and held open a door into a long drawing-room, from which the Pasha's modernity had stripped every charm except the colour of some worn old rugs. The windows were draped in European style, the walls exhibited paper instead of panelling. In one corner was a Victrola, and in another, beside a lounge chair, stood a table littered with cigarette trays and French novels with explicit titles. The only Egyptian touch to the place was four enormous oil portraits of pompous turbaned gentlemen, in one of which Ryder recognized the familiar rotundity of Mahomet Ali in his grand robes. As a pasha's palace it was a blow, and Ryder's vague, romantic notions of high walls and gilded arches suffered a collapse. Tufik Pasha came in with haste. He had been going out when these callers were announced, and he was dressed for parade, in a very light, very tight suit, gardenia in his buttonhole, cane in his gloved hands, fez upon his head. For all their smiling welcome, his full, dark eyes were uneasy. He had grown distrustful of surprises. It was McLean's affair to reassure him. 
Far from fulminating any accusations, the canny Scot announced himself as the bearer of glad tidings. A fortune, he announced, was coming to the Pasha, or to the Pasha's family. A very rich old woman in France had decided to change her will. There he paused, and the Pasha continued to smile noncommittally, but the word fortune was operating. In the back of his mind he was hastily trying to think of rich old women in France who might change their wills. "'I am afraid that it's my stupidity which has kept you from the knowledge of this for some weeks,' McLean went on. "'I had so many other matters to look up that I did not at once consult my records. It has been so many years since you married Madame Delcasse that the name had slipped general recollection. It was twelve years ago, I believe, that she died.' Casually he waited, and Jack Ryder held his breath. He felt the full suspense of a pause long enough for the Pasha's thoughts to dart down several avenues and back. If the man should deny it! But why should he? What harm in the admission, after all these years, with Madame Delcasse dead and buried, and with a fortune involved in the admission? The Turk bowed, and Ryder breathed again. Ten years, said Tufik softly. Ah, ten! But there has been no communication with France for twelve years or even longer? Possibly not, monsieur. This old aunt, pursued McLean, was a person of prejudice as well as fortune. Hence it has taken a little time for her to adjust herself. He paused and looked understandingly at the Turk, who nodded amiably as one whose comprehension met him more than halfway. My own aunt was of similar obstinacy, he murmured. He added, This fortune you speak of, it comes through my wife. For her inheritors, Madame Delcasse, the former Madame Delcasse, I should say, left but one daughter. Again the Pasha bowed, and again Ryder felt the throb of triumph. He looked upon his friend with admiration. How marvelously McLean had worked the miracle! No accusations, no threats, no obstacles, no blank walls of denial. Not a ruffle of discord in the establishment of these salient facts, the marriage of Madame Delcasse to the Pasha, and the existence of the daughter. Wonderful man, McLean! He had never half appreciated him. But the Pasha was not wholly the simple assenter. "'Do I understand,' he inquired, "'that there is a fortune coming from France for my daughter?' And at McLean's confirmation, "'And when you say fortune,' he continued, "'you intend to say—' and his glance now took in the silent American, considering that some cue must be his. But McLean responded, "'The figures are not to be divulged, not until the aunt is in communication with her niece. But they will be large, monsieur, for this aunt is a person of great wealth, and yet alive to enjoy it,' said Tufik with smiling eyes. "'An aged and dying woman,' thrust in Ryder in haste, "'her only care now is to see her niece before she dies.' "'Ah! But that could be arranged,' said Tufik amiably. "'We have at once communicated with France,' McLean told him. "'But we came instantly to you to inform you. "'A thousand thanks, and a thousand. "'The bearers of good tidings,' smiled their host. "'Because we understand that there is a question of the young lady's marriage,' pursued McLean. "'And ye would, of course, wish to defer this.' until these new circumstances are complied with. The Pasha stared. Not at all. A fortune is as pleasant to a wife as to a maid. There are so many questions of law, 
offered McLean with purposeful vagueness. French wardship and trusteeship and all that. It would be advisable, I think, to wait. Absurd, said the Pasha easily. You would want no doubts cast upon the legality of the marriage, McLean persisted thoughtfully. And since mademoiselle is under age, and the French law has certain restrictions, piff! We are not under French law. At least I have not heard that England has relinquished her power, retorted Tufik, not without malice. But Mademoiselle Delcasse is French, thrust in Ryder. He knew that McLean had ventured as far as he, an official and responsible person, could go, and that the burden of intimation must rest upon himself. And under her father's will, his family there is considered in trusteeship, so there would be certain technicalities that must be considered before any marriage can be arranged, the signature of the French guardian, the settlement of the dot, this inheritance, for instance, all mere formalities, but involving a little delay. Tufik Pasha turned in his chair, and cocked his eyes at this strange young man, who had dropped from the blue with this extensive advice. He looked puzzled. This American fitted into no type of his acquaintance. He was so very young and slim and boyish, with not at all the air of a legal representative but McLean's position vouched for him. "'You speak for the French family, monsieur?' Unhesitatingly, Ryder declared that he did. "'Then you may inform the family,' announced Tufik, bristling, "'that my daughter has been very well cared for, all these years, without advice from France.' "'I haven't a doubt of it,' said Ryder quickly. "'But the French law might begin to entertain doubts of it, if Mademoiselle were married off now, without consultation with the authorities.' Already, he added a little meaningly, as the other shrugged the suggestion away, there have been questions raised concerning the mother's marriage and the separation of the little Mademoiselle Delcasse from her relatives in France, and now if she were to be married without any legal settlement of her estate. Steadily he sustained the other's gaze, while his unfinished thought seemed to float significantly in the air about them. Have a cigarette, said the Pasha hospitably extending a gold case monogrammed with diamonds and emeralds ah coffee he announced welcomely as a little black boy entered with a brass tray of steaming cups i hope gentlemen that you like my coffee it is not the usual turkish brew no this comes from aden the finest coffee in the world a ship captain brings it to me especially beamingly he sipped the scalding stuff then darted back to that suspended sentence but you were saying something of a trusteeship. Do I understand that it is an aunt of Madame Delcasse, the former Madame Delcasse, who is leaving this money? Not of Madame, but of Monsieur Delcasse, McLean informed him. Ah, that accounts. But in that case, then, there need be no concern in France over my daughter's marriage. He turned his round eyes from one to the other a moment. There is no Mademoiselle Delcasse. Sir? said Ryder sharply. There is no Mademoiselle Delcasse, repeated the Pasha, his eyes frankly enlivened. But we have been just speaking, you cannot mean to say. We have been speaking of my daughter, the daughter of the former Madame Delcasse. Smilingly he looked upon them. A pity that we did not understand each other. But you appear to know so much, and I supposed that you knew that, too, that the daughter of Monsieur Delcasse was dead. Neither of the young men spoke, 
McLean looked politely attentive. Ryder's face maintained that look of concentration which guarded the fluctuations of his feelings. "'It was many years ago,' the Pasha murmured, putting down his coffee-cup and selecting another cigarette. "'Not long after her mother's marriage to me. A very charming little girl. I was positively attached to her,' Tufik admitted reminiscently. "'Well, well, well, what a pity now,' said McLean very slowly. "'This would be a great disappointment.' And so the present mademoiselle is my daughter. McLean was silent. Ryder could hardly trust himself to speak. What did she die of? he asked at last, in a voice whose edged quality brought the Pasha's glance to him with a flash of hostility behind its veil. But he answered calmly enough. Of the fever, monsieur. She was never strong. And her grave, I should like to make a report. It was in the south, desert burial, I am afraid. You must know that the little one was hardly a true believer for our cemetery. And you would say that she was only five or six years old? Ryder persisted. The Pasha nodded. I should like to get as near as possible to the date, if it is not too much trouble. The father died fifteen years ago, and the mother was married to you soon after? Really, monsieur, you— Tufik was frankly restive. I know nothing of the father, he said sullenly. As to the child's death, how can one recall after these years, in one, two years, after she came to me? One does not grave these things upon the eyeballs. But you do remember that it was long ago, when your own daughter was very little? Exactly. That is my recollection, monsieur. And I recall, said the Pasha, suddenly obliging and sentimental, that even my little one cried for the child. It was afflicting. Assure the family in France of my sympathy in their disappointment. I am very sorry that my news is, after all, of new interest to you, observed McLean, setting the example for rising. You will pardon my error of information, and accept my appreciation of your courtesy. It is I who am indebted for your trouble, their host assured them, all smiles again. But Ryder was not to be led away without a parting shot. The name of the Delcasse child was Amy. Imperceptibly, Tufik hesitated, then bowed in assent. Odd, said young Ryder thoughtfully, and your own daughter's name also is Amy. Two little ones with the same name. With a slight vexed laugh, as one despairing of understanding, the Pasha turned to McLean. Your young friend, monsieur, is uninformed that Turkish children have many names. After the loss of the elder, we called the little one by the same name. I trust I have made everything perfectly clear to you. As crystal, said McLean politely. As lightning, said Jack Ryder hotly, striding down the street. It was a flash of invention, that yarn. When I spoke about the question raised by his marriage, the old fox sniffed the wind and was afraid of trouble. He decided on the instant that no future fortune was worth interference with his plans, and he cut the ground from under our feet. Lord, what a lie! Masterly, you must admit. Oh, I admired the beggar, even while I choked on it. But fever, desert burial, two amis, and the sentimental face he pulled. He ought to have had a spotlight in wailing woodwinds. McLean chuckled. I'll believe anything of him now, Ryder rushed on. I'll bet he murdered Delcasse and kidnapped the mother and now he's selling their daughter. 
I fancy murder's a bit beyond our Tufik. That's too thick. He's probably telling the truth there. He may never have known Delcas. And as for the widow, she must have been in no end of trouble with a dead man and a wrecked expedition, and a baby on her hands, and Tufik may have offered himself as a grateful solution to her. You'd be surprised at the things I've heard. And if she looked like her picture, Tufik probably laid himself out to be lovely to her. I rather liked the chap myself. "'I love him,' Ryder snorted, the infernal liar. "'Steady now. Suppose it's all the truth. Nothing impossible to it. Fact is, I'd rather believe it,' said McLean imperturbably. "'It hangs together. If this girl you met thinks she's his daughter, that's conclusive. She'd have some idea, servants' gossip or family whisperings, and why should he have brought her up as his own? No other children. And he'd grown fond of her, of course, if you could see her,' retorted Ryder. "'Just as well, I can't. And I think he could hardly have kept her in the dark. We'd better call it a wild goose chase, and say the man's telling the truth.' "'If this girl were his daughter, she couldn't be more than fourteen years old. And I've seen the girl, and she's eighteen if she's a day. You might take her for twenty. Fourteen, said Ryder, in repudiating scorn. Hesitatingly, McLean murmured something about the early maturity of the natives. "'Natives?' Ryder flung back angrily. This girl's French. As far as we're concerned, Jack, this girl is Turkish. And fourteen. We can't get around that, and ye had better not forget it, his friend quietly advised. We've done everything that we can, and there's no use working yourself up. If anybody's to blame in this business, I don't think it's Tufik. He's done the handsome thing by her. But the fool Frenchman who took his baby and his wife into the desert, and it's too late to rag him. Cheer up, old top, and forget it. There's nothing more to be done. It was sound advice. Jack Ryder knew it. They had done all that they could. McLean had been a brick. There remained nothing now but to notify the Delcas aunt that Tufik Pasha claimed the child. And I've a notion, Jack, said McLean thoughtfully, that he might not have done that if he hadn't rushed him so, trying to break off the marriage. That was what frightened him. I thought you said she was his own daughter. Ryder responded indignantly, and to that McLean merely murmured, "'She will be now, to all time.' It was a haunting thought. It left Ryder with the bitter taste of blame in his mouth, the gall and wormwood of blame and a baffled defeat. But for that sense of blame he might have taken McLean's advice. He might, but for that, have gone the way of wisdom and accepted the inevitable. As it was, he did none of these things. He said to himself that all that he could do now, and the least that he could do, was to let the girl know as much of the story as he knew, and draw her own conclusions. Then, if she wanted to go on and sacrifice herself for Tufik, very well, that was none of his affair. But she had a right to the truth, and to the chance of choice. He did not know what he could do, but secretly and defiantly he promised himself that he would do something, and in the back of his mind an idea was already taking shape. It was manifest in the tenacity with which he refused to send the locket to the Delcasses. He had the case and the miniature photographed very carefully by the man who did the reproductions for museum illustrations, and he sent that, conscious of McLean's silent thought that he was cherishing the portrait for a sentimental memory. But he had other plans for it. He did not return to his diggings. He sent a message to the deserted Thatcher, faking errands in Cairo, and he took a room at the hotel where Jinny Jeffries, now up the Nile, had stayed. 
He spent a great deal of time evenings in the hotel garden, staring over the brick walls to the tops of the distant palms beyond, and not infrequently he slipped out the garden's back door and wandered up and down the dark canyon of a lane. He might as well have walked up and down the veranda of Shepherd's Hotel. And yet the girl had her key. She could get away if she wanted to, and she might want to if she knew the truth. But how to get the truth to her? That was his problem. A dozen plans he considered and rejected. There were the mails, simple and obvious channel, but he had a strong idea that maidens in Mohammedan seclusion do not receive their letters directly. And now, especially, Tufik would be on his guard. Then there was the chance of a message through some native's hands. The house servants? There were hours one day when Ryder sauntered about the streets, covertly eyeing the baggy-trousered Saiz, who stood holding a horse in the sun, or the tattered baker's boy approaching the entrance with his long loaves upon his head. But Ryder's Arabic was not of a power or subtlety to corrupt any creature, and he stayed his tongue. Bitterly he regretted his wasted years. If he had not misspent them in godly living, he would now be upon such terms of intimacy with some official's pretty wife, who had the entree to a pasha's daughter, that she could be induced to make use of it for him. Desperately he thought of remedying this defect. There were several charming young matrons not averse to devoted young men, but the time was short for establishing those confidential relations which were what he required now. Jinny Jeffreys would do it for him if she could, but Jinny would not return for another week, and if she changed her mind and took the boat back, as he, alack, had advised, instead of the express, then she would be longer. And meanwhile, the days were passing, four of them now, since he and McLean had heard the Sudanese locking the door behind them. There seemed nothing for it but to trust to that idea which had been slowly shaping in his mind. End of chapter 8「When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes, like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.